shouldn't have said organize all the pages. That implies there's like a lot of pages, but there's not that many. It's not that many. Some of you visited with us for the first time last week, and I just want you to know that I was like 10 minutes over. So like if you were stressed about that, know that I will do my best to do better. But I should start where, where it says to start, which is by telling you again good morning um, and telling you that it is truly good to be with you. I want to start this morning actually by telling a little bit of a silly story that I don't think I've told before, although I am running out of original stories. So like this could be the last one, the last new one. But as most, and it starts with a place you're familiar with. As most of you know, many years ago, uh, before I was pastor, I was an English teacher. And when I was an English teacher, my friend Isaac, who was a coworker of mine, and I had this program uh, where after graduation, we would take a van full of high school um, seniors on a cross-country road, road trip through the national parks. And this program was like easily my favorite thing. No offense to this church, but it's my favorite thing I've ever done. Um, whoops. <laughs> but I loved it. And a word to any of you who have um, like high school age kids or like budding high school seniors, I absolutely, nothing would bring me more joy um, than to try and organize something like this again for people. Maybe not even high schoolers. Some of you are like, I'm 65, but I want in. And I feel like you too, whatever. Point is, you can always talk me into to taking a road trip. But in any case, on these trips, we would go all over the place. We went to Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and Yosemite in California. And inevitably, on these trips, we would see weird things, like really strange things. I waited out a tornado on an interstate one time. I, uh, I found the back gate to Area 51 on the same day that I learned I had Lyme disease. That's a whole other thing. And then I met, this was the hard to capture. You have to like visualize. I once like hiked all the way to the top of a mountain and there was a man in later hosen with an alpenhorn like playing at the top of a mountain in Nevada. I don't know why. But among the strangest things that ever happened, um, happened on a trail in Arches National Park. And so the boys and Isaac and I are on our way up to see Delicate Arch, which is the, the really famous sandstone arch that's on the Utah license plates. And as we're hiking up this trail, which is maybe, I don't know what it is. I'm gonna guess about a four mile round trip trail. But so like something, but not, not a walk in the park, but you know, not climbing a mountain. Anyways, we're on this trail. And as we're walking, we like run into this woman who's in like a red evening, get, evening dress and like heels, like red high heels. And that's not the strange part. What's strange is she's hiking on this trail and both of her hands, she has, like very fancy and expensive puppets on both of her hands as she's walking and they're talking like the whole way. So we pass her and we're like, that's strange. <laughs> there is a story and I don't know if I want to know it, but there's a story. And so we hike past her and then later we're back in the parking lot and we're getting ready to go. And sure enough, we see her and she's like over on the other side of the parking lot and she's posing with the puppets for photos. And I, I suppose her partner is like taking pictures of her posing with these puppets. And so like we did what you would do, which is we dared a high schooler to go ask her what was going on. <laughs> and so <laughs> we dare one of the boys, like go find out what this is. And so he goes and then he comes back with a look of like actual shell shock on his face, <laughs> like deeply concerned. And he just says, she says they go to all the parks together but she only talked with the puppets and she made me shake their hands. <laughs> and so we're like, that didn't answer any questions. 
And so we're like trying to figure this out. And then he like still like, you know, like looks like he's seen a ghost. And he just asks us, he just says, is this like an adult thing? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, they're high school seniors, but I get nervous about these kinds of conversations. <laughs> and so I'm like in a panic and I'm like trying to frame some kind of ambiguous answer. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know that I want to know, but like, but as I'm like trying to figure this out, Isaac just totally interrupts and he bails me out and he just says, hey, whatever gets him outside, okay? Okay, so here's how I'm hoping that this, this story relates to this morning. We are wrapping up our summer series this morning on the life of Samuel. And we have arrived at what is certainly one of the most puzzling stories and bizarre stories in all of the Old Testament. And it's a story that's going to leave us, I am sure, with a million questions. And I want to say, like, those questions are worth exploring. But at the same time, I'm going to organize our time around Isaac's point this morning, which is that as strange as this story is, it also gets us outside. Like, it gets us somewhere. And I think what that means is that this is a story that can and some, a story that will show us something important if we can look at it. So that's a pretty good preamble. You guys are really curious what in the world we're talking about. So let's get into it. So to set the context a little bit, where we are in the story of Israel in this moment is it is now less than 24 hours before the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was the people's choice, as we've talked about, the people's choice to be a king because they wanted a king that was going to look more like their neighbors. That is, we are within 24 hours of his death. He's going to die in a battle against the Philistines. And after he dies, the nation is going to be in turmoil until the new king, King David, who was God's choice to be king, can be placed on the throne. So we've got like a transition. Some of you have started watching like this new Game of Thrones show, so you're like in on this kind of political turmoil. But yeah, that's what we have. We have like transition happening. And this is all made the more complicated though, because the figure who's supposed to like lead us through that transition, who is Samuel, right? The prophet Samuel. Samuel is also dead already. So our transition is now in this limbo. We have Saul, who is the man that has lost like God's favor and is, is kind of on his way out, but he has sons. And so like he has a certain claim to the throne. And then we have David, who's been anointed as the new king, but he doesn't have that guy anymore who can actually get him onto the throne. Still, with all of that kind of political intrigue, a war is coming. A war with the Philistines is on the horizon. And so David did the thing that he often does, which is he's agreed to serve at the front of Israel's army in battling the Philistines. But we pick up here with Saul, and Saul is frightened. The Bible says that terror filled his heart. And so our story begins in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel with this. So Saul, he's frightened, terror's filled his heart, and he is inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or through priests or prophets. So as always, what's going on here is Saul wants reassurance, right? He wants reassurance before this big battle that he's going to win. This is something he's done consistently throughout his kingship when there have been conflicts. But he has established this pattern during his reign of only really asking for God's help when he needs God to do something for him. And now he's in this moment. He has nobody to bail him out. And God is silent. And so he's in a panic. We pick up in verse 7 here. 
Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. And then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. All right, we're going to pause here for a second, because we've gotten, we got our puppets out now, right? We've gotten to the weird part of the story. And we, as we're here, we need to acknowledge something that's pretty important, and I think is, is kind of like the, the current running through the story, which is that Saul is desperate. Saul is desperate. We've been saying for weeks in this series now that what distinguishes Saul from everybody else is his insecurity, that he's never been able to believe who God and who Samuel have told him that he is. They told him he's the king, but he hasn't trusted that he's the king. And in response to that, that insecurity, he's been desperate to earn these, their respect, to earn the respect of Samuel, to earn the respect of God. But here... He is at the end of his rope, and he's done something awful, which is that he selfishly tricked this woman into doing something that he, as king, has already declared to be punishable by death. And so he's not only breaking his own rules, right, and condemning himself, but he's also dragging other people down into all of this with him. And it's an awful sight to kind of close out Saul's story. But it's also, I think, this kind of symbolic encapsulation of, of everything that we know so far about Saul's story and what's going to happen, what the consequences are of that inability to trust that he is who God has told him he is. All that being said, though, we should still admit that this is strange. That this is a weird story. The implications here are genuinely troubling, right? Like, is this story like saying that there are really ghosts? It certainly seems like it. Samuel seems to be Samuel. Is it saying that there are like witches who can like conjure up ghosts? That's a whole thing. Where is Samuel that he's being called up from? That's an interesting question that the story like leaves us with. And the reason these questions become difficult to answer is because there are no other stories in the Bible like this story to like hold against it, to try and understand it. And there are also no easy answers from what the rest of the Bible says to help us figure out any of the answers to these questions. So all that to say that we're going to come back to this a little bit, even though 
I also want to kind of foreground things for you here by saying this is not a riddle that I know how to solve. I don't think it's a riddle that anybody quite knows how to solve. What's going on with this witch? But for now, though, what I want to say is this. Like I said a moment ago, it's getting us outside. So I want to like stay outside a little bit longer. So here's where we go in verse 16. Samuel says this. So like Saul, Saul has summoned Samuel. Samuel's now talking. Here's what Samuel says. He says, why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. All right. So this is, of course, like the worst possible news that he can get. Not only are they going to lose this battle, but he's going to die and his sons are going to die with him. So where does Saul go from here? Well, in the next verses, it says that immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. And when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. And he refused and he said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And that same night, they got up and left. And there you have it. Not the ending to the story you might have expected. Saul, Samuel, and the surprisingly hospitable witch of Endor. It's a strange one. And there is, I said earlier, I don't have easy answers for you. I do have one easy answer that I can give you about the story. And I know there's like at least four of you in the room right now who are just simply not going to be able to move on until we address this, right? And that is like, yes, it is indoor, like the moon where the Ewoks live, right? <laughs> I don't know what the connection is between these two things. I would be lying if I told you that I did not spend a shocking amount of time this week trying to understand the connection. And I got nothing on like why that is the case. But with that out of the way, and now that we're outside, where else can we go? I think, I think there are three things that this story can kind of reveal. Not just about anything, but I think three things that this story reveals that help us kind of close out our discussion over the last six weeks about listening and what it means to listen. And the first is this. We should not confuse God's silence with God's absence should not confuse God's silence with God's absence. As we said earlier, everything in this story begins with Saul's insecurity. But what is Saul insecure about? What does he say? Well, he tells Samuel back at the beginning of all this, when Samuel comes up, he says, I am in great distress. And then he says, the Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. 
Do you see those two thoughts that he's tying together here? Because God doesn't answer him, he believes that God has departed from him. Is that true? Do those things mean the same thing? And is it something that you can relate to, right? Like, do you equate God's silence with God's absence? I think it's hard not to. I know that I fall into that. But is it true? Has God in the story departed from Saul, right? We have a case study here where like, if this is a true proposition, God's silence is God's absence, then what does this story tell us? And I think the troubling thing, right, is that it doesn't tell us that God has departed from Samuel. In fact, it says quite the opposite. It says here in the story that what Samuel tells Saul is that God has become his enemy. That what is going to happen in the story isn't the result of God checking out and not paying attention. Rather, what is about to happen is going to be the result of God's presence. This loss for Israel isn't chance or chaos or apathy. It's consequence, intentional consequence. And I think that means like we can sense why Saul would want to avoid that truth, right? It is easier to believe that God is just simply gone. It's hard to hear that God is still sovereign even when there's suffering. I don't mean to make you squirm in your seat about that. And trust me when I say like, I'm squirming in my shoes, I suppose, like telling you about it. But here's, here's my conviction for this morning. I think we need to be brave for a moment and actually look at this possibility and I look at this, this thesis because I believe that the same God that I'm looking for, right, this God of forgiveness and mercy and love, that that God is under here even if it's hard to look at it. And I want to find him under there. So the question really is like, can I? Is he there? I think an important point that we sometimes lose is that it, when we think about stories like this one, we think even about suffering and justice. I think an important point we lose is that it's not just going to be Saul who suffers the next day, right? Saul's sons are going to die in this battle because of things Saul has done. And it's not just them either, right? Other people's sons are about to die in a battle because of things Saul has done. What about their parents suffering, grieving a lost child? Won't those parents wonder if God has abandoned them? Won't those parents be hurt and angry? The truth is that God isn't gone in the story. The truth is that God is angry too. And he's specifically angry at how our choices, specifically how Saul's choices are spreading out and hurting other people because that spread is unfair. So the question that the story, I think, invites us to ask is, who's really behind all of this suffering? I think Samuel's answer is pretty clear, that it's Saul's fear and Saul's pattern of disobedience, which have led not just him, but have led everybody to this moment. He reminds Saul, I think, by telling him those things, that the story is bigger than him. 
and because of his choices, and because his choices are leading to so much continuing harm, God is no longer being patient with him, and God is actively working to replace him as the king. He is not gone. What God's actually doing in this story is making a way. He's making a way beyond the story that Saul has been a part of to this point. All that to say that I think, I know I'm in the weeds a little bit, but I think when we tie God's silence to God's absence, we can think that when we're doing that, we're facing the hard thing. We can think we're being brave and sort of like imagining like, what if God's not even here? What if there is no God? But I think this story is asking us to consider that even when we think we're facing the hard thing in God's absence, what we might be doing, in fact, is running from a harder thing. But at the same time, the only thing that actually has any capacity to bring hope. And that is that God's story is bigger than us. That it's bigger than us. And that God's story that he's telling is bigger than the moment we're in. Whatever disaster might be occurring. And I think relief in the God story, relief in our relationship with God can come when we allow that reality, that the story we are participating in is bigger than we are, when we allow that reality to humble us because we need humility to hear a story that's bigger than us, a bigger story that can hold us in it. And I think this is why we have Samuel's example in this whole narrative alongside Saul's example, because Samuel is somebody who listens, because Samuel's raised by a man who, even when he's given similar news to what Saul's just been given, that his line is going to die, that his sons are going to die because of his sins, the man that Samuel learned from, the priest Eli, says what? He says, God is good. God's going to do what God's going to do. He accepts that his place is in a story that's bigger than him. And that means he has the imagination to be able to see how God's story is working through him to find new pathways for hope and deliverance for his people. But you got to get outside of only your own bubble in order to be able to see that hope in what feels and what is sometimes a personal tragedy or suffering. So that's thing one. We can't confuse God's silence for God's absence. The second thing I think the story reveals about listening is less bleak. Some of you are like, ooh, is it going to get worse? No, there are a couple of things here that I think are a little more hopeful or more obviously hopeful. And the second point is this. We can always take care of one another. We can always take care of one another. Did you notice in the story as I read it that the story spends more time with the witch than it does with the ghost of Samuel? Samuel's ghost seems relatively eager to get out of here, right? He's like, why did you bother me? He gives bad news, which there's another way of looking at this story that recognizes like, man, even from the grave, Samuel is mean to Saul. Like just endlessly in the whole narrative, every time Saul asks him how he's doing, he gives him terrible news. So no end from that. But Samuel gives the bad news and then he's out of there. The story, however, centers and sort of centers on and circles back to this witch. And I have to say, as I was reflecting on the story this week, one of the things that I am constantly amazed by, I talked to my friend Travis about this this week, one thing that I am constantly amazed by about this book that we read and talk about every Sunday, this 3,000-year-old book, I am constantly amazed at the ways that it centers 
stories on and around culturally marginalized women over and over and over again. Like, look at this story at the wit, at the, ooh, I didn't, in writing it, I didn't realize it was gonna be hard to say richness and witch at the same time. <laughs> look at the richness that that witch as a character reveals. Like, she knows the laws of the land, right? As soon as she's asked about doing this thing, she's, she makes sure everybody knows that it's bad. She does her best to protect herself in the story, even though she's in this position, Saul put her in this position culturally, where she's kind of bound by the rules of hospitality to oblige her guests in some way. So she's afraid. She clarifies that they're asking her to do something that's wrong. They've asked her to do it anyways. She's afraid, and then she's brave. She does the thing. And then in the end, even though she has done something for which the man in front of her could very easily have her killed, very well might have her killed, especially since the ghost she brought up told him like the worst possible thing, which had to have made her squirm, right? Like tell him nice stuff, but he doesn't. And that even in this moment where her life is very much in jeopardy, she's empathetic to him and kind to him. Not only does she see Saul's weariness, she goes way out of her way to meet his needs. This man could be the death of her, but she's committed to being the life of him. And why? Why does she do all of that? Well, the text only tells us this. It says she saw that he was greatly shaken. She saw that he was greatly shaken. So I think there's room in looking at the story to ask, can we be similarly challenged and convicted by her compassion? in this moment? Or are we tempted often to do the thing that we kind of are wondering what she's not doing, which is saying like, well, this is pretty clearly what he deserves. And also, it doesn't really matter. He's got like 18 hours left on the planet. Like if he dies hungry, he dies hungry, right? Like she has every reason to just let him reap what he has sown. It's not gonna matter. But she does it anyway. And I think in doing that, she shows us how little kindness ought to have to do with what anybody has coming to them. I think kindness that we see in the story rises up, specifically from this, it rises up from the people we're willing to see. She's willing to see him, even though he's a threat to her. And in seeing him, she's compassionate. And so we see this story that we've been seeing all through the life of Samuel so far over and over again of like when we, when we imitate a God who listens to us and who sees us, our character begins to reflect his character. When he listens to us, he shows us how to listen and to see. When we follow him in that, our hearts become compassionate and begin to mirror his heart. And the thing that gets in the way that interrupts our ability to be kind and loving is not just that we don't try hard enough at it. It's that we skip that first step of listening and seeing. If we can commit not to trying to be good, but to listen and see, then things will wake up in us. God-like things will wake up in us like beyond ourselves because we're following that first step. We're following his example. So, that was all off the cuff, so if I said anything heretical there, we can talk later, but there's a tension here in the story that I think is going to get us towards that third point, but I think actually we have to go back a little bit to get there. So seven weeks ago now, we began this series 
where the book of 1 Samuel begins, right? We began it with Samuel's mother, who's a woman named Hannah, and who, as we met her, was childless and grieving, and who for years, in the middle of her own suffering, in her own experience of God's silence, if not his absence, spoke bravely with a God whose presence she continued to believe in and trust in. And after many years of praying to God, God finally does respond to Hannah, and he enables her to give birth to a son. A son is Samuel, and after Samuel's born, she, she prays, and the Bible in 1 Samuel 2 records her prayer, and it's instructive, I think, for all the things that follow. She, I've like picked some parts out of it because it's very long, but I encourage you to read all of 1 Samuel 2, I don't know, when you get home, on your phone, not in the car, whatever, but read it. But here's what we, we picked out here. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. He does these things for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. It is not by strength that one prevails. He will give strength to his king. Now, in trying to figure out what's going on with this, this whole story this week, I found that there are a lot of folks who do draw a connection here between verse 6 and that scene that we talked about indoor that quite literally there's like this foreshadowing moment here where quite literally at the end of the book god is going to bring somebody down to a grave and also bring somebody up from one but even if that helps to solve on some level the riddle of like what's happening here in terms of this this story hannah's prayer i think gives us an opportunity to see more than just that hannah i think is giving us a key of sorts because she is rejoicing in God for one specific reason, right? And that is that God is listening. And what he wants for his people, what he wants most for his people is for them to rest in him, to not try all the time to earn his favor or to boast in or lean on their own strength, but to rest in him. Those who can't do that, those who can't rest on their own in this story and throughout the Old Testament, are endlessly in this position where they are fighting to prove themselves and fighting to earn God's favor and to make the thing true about them that they want to be true about them. But what Hannah is saying is the people who do that will do it for a while, but ultimately God is going to force them into rest. He's going to force them to rest. Meanwhile, those who wait on the Lord, who even like Hannah cry out to him, in the middle of, of seasons where they're not feeling his presence, where they're not getting the things that they want, the people who wait on the Lord are the people that God hears and lifts up. And it's worth asking in this moment, we said this way back at the beginning of the series, we're not dealing with a text that was recorded in the moment, you know, somebody's scribing all of these things down the second that it's all happening. We're dealing with a text that's carried by oral tradition for 500 years among the people of Israel through ups, downs, the collapse of their kingdom into exile. And then in the wake of that exile, they're now writing down as a thing as to, to, to like kind of make this a core 
structured memory for them as a people moving forward. And so as we look at the story, we have to ask not just like what's happening, but also why would you want to remember it? What are you hoping for? And I think if we think about the story in that way, the people of Israel, I think, are preserving this story because they want to remember something important about who they're supposed to be. The greatness of this kingdom that they remember, this kingdom of David when they were at their peak, right? That, that would be easy as they're returning for exile to set that, their sights on that is what we're going to have again. We're going to rebuild the kingdom of David. We're going to build a mighty empire. But in, this, in the moment that they're, that they're tempted by that as a people, what do they do instead? Well, they record a story like this one, which says that what Israel ought to be chasing isn't the greatness and the power of a past empire. What they have a chance to actually recover is the spirit of Hannah who shared herself boldly with God even in a season when he didn't seem to be there and then trusted God to answer her prayers in his wisdom. In other words, to understand what Hannah understood, which is that this isn't her story. It's a story that she feels she would be blessed to have a chance to participate in. And then God hears that, honors that, and invites her to participate in this bigger story he's telling. I think the final takeaway from all that today is this. We need to have the courage to learn the lessons that uncertainty has the ability to teach us. And I think if we don't run from it, the lesson uncertainty teaches us is this. All of this is a gift. And the gift that we've been given, even, even in pain, even in hardship, is aimed at a promise. And that promise is that God is going to bring things back to the way that he wants them to be. He's going to restore and his kingdom will come. And it's asking for our trust. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, wherever, however hard it may seem, like the life that you have is a gift. That gift is aiming at a promise as all of our stories are aiming at it, which is the restoration of things. And God is asking for our trust. You might be in a season of silence. Can you find courage in that season to go deeper and to keep speaking even in your pain? Don't let this temptation to assume that God's absence this is like, don't let this temptation to assume God's absence keep you from this treasure that can be at the very bottom of a hard season, which is that even where you are, wherever depth you find yourself in, if you look for him, you can still find a just and loving God near to you. There's no depth you can be in that he has not also gone to and that he won't go in order to be near to you. You might be not in a season of suffering, but you might be in, a, in the witch's place, right? You might be in a position of witness, of witnessing other people in a hard time. And you may feel as you're witnessing that maybe they have it coming to them. They deserve it in some way. But can you find that level of empathy? Can you find the courage to sit with people who are hurting and insist on meeting their needs even when they tell you they're fine? Do you have that boldness in you to, to push that issue, to sit with people regardless of whether they're getting what they deserve, regardless of whether they are pushing you away. And then the third place, right? You might be instead in a place where you're experiencing real uncertainty in your life, in your faith, in, in anything. 
And the challenge there that I think this whole book has given us is can you be brave enough to actually feel and see where you are? Actually look at where you are and what you're feeling and what you're thinking and believing. Don't run from it. Don't like hide it under this veil of like, I just don't feel like I know what's going on. Like, are you, are you making the time and the rhythm and the place to like explore where you are and what you're feeling and thinking? What small truths support your weight? Maybe you don't know if you can hold on to the big truths about salvation and eternity and a loving and just God. But is there a small truth that you think you can put your weight on? And if you stand on that truth, can you, are you willing to keep pushing towards something? What larger truth can support your weight? I'm asking you, where are you going, right? And I'm challenging you not to just sit in a place of saying, I don't know, and throwing your hands up and not caring. Because I think underneath you do care, and I want you to keep moving somewhere and have the courage to keep moving, even if the place you're moving might be towards, towards giving all of this up. I'd still rather you move to explore and push. The connection, what connects these lessons, right? About silence and empathy and uncertainty. I think the connection is this. It's in Israel's claim that their God is different. That he's not far away in the places that other people's gods might be. That he doesn't give blessings to people in exchange for their good behavior in worship as maybe another faith system comparable to Israel's at the time might have taught. That instead, this different God of Israel, what's, what's distinct about him is that he's listening, that he's just, not just for the powerful, not just for the king, but just for everybody. And that he grieves with us when we suffer, when we hurt ourselves and each other with our decisions. And not only is he those things, not only is he just in his character and listening and grieving, he's working, actively working all the time to draw us back to himself. If we have the courage to listen to him, to consider if those things are true, like how will we learn? How will we learn to follow him? 